0: another episode of Public Problems. Today I'm once again with some Bush School students who had the uh, opportunity, or um, I'll call it an opportunity, they might have put it some some other way, to take a course with me in the fall of 2018. And as we're wrapping down this semester, uh, they did a second report, and this report is on affirmative action in higher education. And so they have some really interesting research they've done and some Uh, nice identification of some of the background and issues, and propose some interesting solutions. So we'll get to all that, but I'd like the group to begin. You're going to hear from five different voices, and so I'd like you to be able to put a name with those. So if you'd like, team, just uh, take a moment and uh, introduce yourselves.
1: Hi, I'm Bethany Bryce. Hi, I'm
2: Song Yi Dai. Hi, my name is Ellie
3: Hooper. Oh, good morning, everybody. My name is James McKenzie. And
0: I'm John Thompson. Awesome. Well, let me begin first by saying thank you so much for your work on this report. I know um, these reports are no short amount of time and take a lot of work, and I really appreciate your willingness to have this conversation with me and let us share your report with the general public. So thanks for that. Um, So your report is on affirmative action, as I mentioned in the intro, and particularly in higher education. So I, I was wondering, before we jump into the specifics, you could pick any topic uh, really in the world. I gave you a pretty broad um, mandate on this. So why did you all decide that you wanted to focus on affirmative action in higher education?
4: So specifically for us, we read the statistic that Black and Hispanic students are actually more underrepresented in the nation's top colleges and universities than they were 35 years ago. Um, oh, wow. And... For us, that statistic was really um, staggering. Um, so we kind of wanted to look, look a little deeper into that. Um, and then additionally, just a more obvious point, we have all um, gone through undergraduate at various institutions and are now studying at the Bush School of Government and Public Service, where um, obviously increasing diversity and affirmative action is a top priority. So um, we, we were interested in learning a little bit more about that.
0: Excellent. So affirmative action is a term that is uh, not without uh, loaded uh, political frames, I suppose, is the only word I can come up with this morning. And so what do you mean by affirmative action? Because this means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and comes with some stigma. Ah, that's the word I was looking for this morning. Stigma. So how do you how did your group define affirmative action and how do you think about it as a broad category of policies?
5: Yeah, that's a great question because it's kind of hard to have a discussion on a topic if everybody doesn't have the same definition or at least a working definition. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me just break it down. Let me start from kind of a broad definition, then I'll funnel it down to really quick to the university level so that we understand the rest of the report. So affirmative action in and of itself, a lot of people, I think, think of it as a policy of equal opportunity for everybody. That's really not the case. Um, You can think of it more as a policy of equal results. Um, And specifically, affirmative action, the goal of it is to institute government policies that are assisting groups that have experienced some type of discrimination in the past and is trying to help them gain access to social goods that they may have been denied in the past or that the system currently has within it some systematic discrimination that hasn't been fixed yet. Um, So that's kind of a general definition.
0: Could I uh, I interrupt you real quick? Yeah. So is, is that part of, you think, just from your own reading of the topic, is that part of the controversy that it's as much about kind of equalizing some different types of outcomes rather than just equality of opportunity? And the piece, the reason there is that it's generally um, trying to help groups that for generations and generations did not have the same opportunities as other groups. Is that kind of a fair way to describe that? I
5: think that's a good observation to make about it. Okay, And cool. I think that's a fair way to put it.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Uh,
5: yeah, no, because that's part of the controversy is perhaps your group is not favored, I guess quotes around that, by this policy versus others. Um, but specifically at the university level, mm-hmm. the way it's been interpreted by the court um, is obviously it's, uh, it's a policy aimed at producing a certain result. And the court itself has said that affirmative action policies are acceptable in the university in the admissions process for the purpose of increasing diversity and that diversity is a good cause to use these policies um, because the courts recognize that diversity has a lot of extra benefits to it. People get to see other cultures. They get to interact with other people, prepares them for the workplace where there is not just one subset of people working uh, that you're working with all day. So that's the goal of affirmative action in universities, is to help these groups who have been uh, discriminated in the past and to help produce diversity on university campuses.
0: Excellent. Um, So I want to talk, I want to get to a talk about um, what types of tools universities use to do that. But before we get there, um, it might be useful to give everyone a little bit of context of the history of affirmative action and how we got to kind of where we are today. I'm really excited to talk about this Harvard case study that you all focus on that's very, um, very relevant and and going on today. But let's start with a history of affirmative action And then as part of that, I'd like to have, as part of the conversation, some of the tools that have been used by universities specifically over time to try to implement affirmative action, if that's okay.
4: So I would love to touch on a couple brief points in in history, a few executive orders, and then moving into a few court cases. And then I think we'll have Troy briefly summarizing the current Harvard case going on. Um, so just to start, um, Executive Order 10925, um, it actually dates back um, all the way to President John F. Kennedy, and that was in 1961. Um, and essentially, this was the first time that the phrasing affirmative action was used. Um, so that that stated um, that government contractors actually should take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and employees are treated. Um, during employment without regard to race, creed, color, or national origin. So that really began in the workplace, and then you'll see historically over time translated into higher education, but that was the original intent of this. Um, and then that moved into actually executive order 10925, which was, um, or excuse me, this, this was actually before um, that executive order, but that was FDR. Um, And that actually gave the President's Committee on Equal Opportunity, the jurisdiction, to kind of investigate these employment practices. So that's some government oversight that was sort of established um, with those two executive orders. Um, And then moving into a couple of court cases, a very obvious one would be Brown versus Board of Education. Um, This was in 1954, as many of you probably already know. Um, The Supreme Court did establish in that case that the segregation of white and colored children in the public education system was deemed unconstitutional. Um, So that was one of the first times that race was considered um, within education, um, which is quite fascinating. Um, And then moving on to 1978, which is um, the University of California versus Bakke. um, And that actually stated that the use of quotas in the admissions process based on race was unconstitutional. this is kind of a fascinating case because um, this young man, Alan Baque, was actually denied admission through his test scores, um, though they were much higher than some minority students admitted. So that was kind of the basis that um, that court case was established on. Um, however, though, though they said um, this specific case was un- un- unconstitutional, the usage of race in considering college admissions for the purpose of educational diversity. Um, was constitutional, um, as long as other factors are considered. So that sort of sets up the basis for where we are today in regards to um, those court cases.
0: Very interesting. So what, um, maybe what tools have universities been using as part of this? And has that changed over time? I mean, is it like a point system, which is something I know we do for veterans in employment? What types of Tools do the universities use to encourage uh, diversity and encourage uh, and to implement affirmative action? So in 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 the Harvard case, they
2: use uh, a scoring scoring system to grade each applicants. So um, specifically for the Harvard University, they rate each applicants on a score of one to six on the following categories. They um. Um, score academic, extracurricular, athletic, and personal rating, and recommendation letters, and alumni, and overall rating.
0: So that's the system. So it's a, usually a a points based system, is is yes. your understanding? So okay, well let's talk a little bit um about the Harvard case. Since we've got a little bit of the background, um what what's going on with this case? It's something that I know has been in the news, and people may have heard about. So what's the what's the deal there?
2: So this is like a lawsuit um, against Harvard's, Harvard's um being accused of uh, discriminating Asians applicants and in favor of other non-white applicants. So including Hispanic and African American. And and from the documents filed in the court, we can see that um, one hundred sixty thousand students were fired by a group representing um, Asian students. And in the documents, um, Harvard is um, like, it's proof that Harvard is have a bias against Asian American. And there's a data they um, assessed from class of 2000 to 2019. And that Asians Americans average SAT score is 24.9 points higher than white applicants, and 153.9 points higher than Hispanic students and 217.7 points higher than African-American applicants.
0: So where, where is the di- discrimination in this case? Is it that the Asian students that have higher SAT scores are not being accepted into the university? Is that kind of the argument there?
2: Yes, and also...
0: The categories,
2: the um, point system that we mentioned, there's a category called um, personal rating and uh, Asian Americans or Asians in general, um, receive lower score, like significantly lower score than other applicants because they are not likable or they don't have um, like, um, their personal traits is not,
0: so the a, a big part of this is that in the ratings of the applicants part of it is personal characteristics or uh, and asians asian americans and asians in general um systematically see received lower scores on their person personality uh dimension of this yes and where is the uh Where is that case today? What is the latest on that case? Is that something that the group looked into?
2: Um, they are still in court. I, I think. uh...
0: Got it. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the overall effectiveness of affirmative action in higher education. This is a interesting current case study um, of of stuff that's going on today. Um, But how is the overall effectiveness of affirmative action? in in increasing diversity. I know at the beginning you mentioned, the group mentioned that the numbers for some uh, groups are lower in higher education than they were, you know, decades ago. So how effective is um, affirmative action in higher education?
5: Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. So affirmative action, when it was really first implemented there in the, at least became a policy kind of in the sixties, it was fairly effective. So since then, it's kind of tapered off. And I'll reference a few studies really quick just to kind of give examples. So there's a study in the Review of Economics. It was done by Peter Heinrichs. And he found that um, affirmative action policies, that it did increase diversity in campuses. And he did the study by looking at universities that had, had affirmative action and then removed the policy. And he found that those universities had removed it, that there was a drop in the number of Underrepresented minorities, so Black, Hispanics, Native Americans, at these universities, and that indicated to him and his study that affirmative action did help increase diversity on in campuses. Um, another more specific example is in the kind of the medical, the medical field. So medical schools, um, beginning about the '60s, they really started pushing um, this idea of instituting policies to help underrepresented minorities. Get into their campuses. So, and there's a chart in our report, and I wish I could show it here, but what it shows is that from beginning about late 60s, early 70s, there's a sharp increase in the number of underrepresented minorities at medical school campuses across the nation. And then after that, it starts to level out and slowly increases for a little bit until about the mid 90s. And then from there, there's a short drop, and it just levels out from about 95 on. So as that report shows in the beginning, affirmative action was great. It worked really well at getting diversity, at closing the gap between the overall population of underrepresented minorities and the underrepresented population in medical school campuses. But after that point, after the mid-90s, it's just kind of leveled out. Its effectiveness has been reduced. And that's what's been found lately is that... So just to reference one more, the New York Times launched an investigative article, and they found that the number of Blacks and Hispanics, the overall population, isn't matching those who are entering college, that there's a large gap, that there are, as the population continues to grow for Blacks and Hispanics, the admission rate for Blacks and Hispanics aren't keeping up. And so that's indicative that affirmative action, while it was effective in the past, while it helped increase diversity, that it's kind of stalled and leveled off and become less effective over time, especially in recent years.
0: So, before we move on to thinking about some of the reasons, or some of the issues that you, the group identifies with, maybe why this is tapered off, I want to pose a little bit of a question and see um, what you're, given your research, what your thought on this is, and it's a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit controversial. Um, so, why... Is it the case that this is a product in part of uh, dis, uh, unequal K through 12 education? So I, we have another group uh, earlier in the semester that did K through 12 inequality fun- funding in K through 12 education, and part of what that picture shows is that uh, Black and Hispanic communities uh, are often uh, have less wealth. the schools are funded locally often and so the schools that are dominated by uh, blacks and Hispanics don't have the same type of outcomes as stu- as schools that are dominated by whites for example. And so I wonder which I know you the group mostly focused on higher education and so maybe this is a little bit outside the scope so feel free to say that. but you to the, to the group's knowledge is, is part of this, that coming into college, uh, whites have received better education on average in K through 12 than blacks and Hispanics. I mean, is it is part of the 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 uh, limit that affirmative action is running to impart a problem from our K through 12 education and the way that it is so disparate across uh, groups of people? Did y'all look into that at all? Yes, we
3: really did. Um... So as a former high school teacher, that was a, uh, a reality that I faced when I was teaching high school, and it was definitely something that we looked into for our report. Interestingly, the state of Texas has actually had a pretty innovative r- approach, um, particularly because um, a lot of people argue that it's not an issue of racial discrimination, why we see a disparity, but it's more of a socioeconomic status issue. And so the state of Texas has instituted a 10% rule. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this before, but the 10% rule is the idea that um, across the state, every local high school has the ability to guarantee acceptance for their top 10% of their students. Therefore, since the way that most inner city schools are racially demographic, um A more minority-based school would also send its top 10% of students um, to government, uh, sorry, state-run universities like the University of Texas, Texas A&M, etc. So that's one way that some states have tried to innovatively go around the idea of instead of using race, they are using um, just a more innovative top 10% rule.
0: So the idea there is that. Um, schools have different level of resources, different level of quality. And so to to kind of control for that or to take that into account, no matter where the school is located, if it's an inner city, uh, successful school or an inner city, poor school or rural, uh, the, the top 10%, uh, automatically are guaranteed acceptance into the major state, uh, universities.
3: Exactly. And that's a great idea um, ideologically. However, there's been some studies that have shown that it hasn't actually dramatically improved um, racial diversity within schools.
0: Got it. Thank you. So let's yeah. talk about um, some of the administrative and political issues the group identified. In your report, one of the first things you talk about in this section is that it's there's some issues around accountability, which is something that come up in class pretty much nonstop. So I'm glad you hit on accountability, but what, you, what did you find in this particular instance are some of the accountability problems?
3: Yes, yeah, so accountability was a topic that I focused on in the report. Um, so we are looking at university-wide across um, the nation in terms of our scope. So um, we wanted to understand, okay, how is it that universities are held accountable for their admissions decisions? And as we were investigating, um, we learned a lot about accrediting agencies. So there's six major regional accrediting agencies in the United States um, that regulate and make sure that uh, colleges are given a stamp of approval for following certain uh, regulations and criteria. Ultimately, not only are universities held accountable through accrediting agencies, but then at an upper level, accrediting agencies are held accountable by the U.S. Department of Education. So we have two different levels of accountability, and we investigated, okay, how much accountability is there at each one of these checkpoints? So uh, through studying the six different regional accrediting agencies, we looked up um, what each of these six regional accrediting accrediting agencies required for admissions criteria. Interestingly, none of the six accrediting agencies had the terminology of race in their admissions criteria. Um, Some of the accrediting agencies had a general um, mentioning of, including a diversity that includes your state's overall population or the community of interest population that the college is recruiting for. Um, But other accrediting agencies had just a general blanket statement that said the college would have a uh, admissions uh, criteria that fits their general mission and no other mention of diversity. And again, none of the accrediting agencies mentioned racial diversity explicitly in their criteria for getting the stamp of approval from the accrediting agency.
0: So the accrediting agencies themselves aren't being particularly explicit about increasing racial diversity. Exactly.
3: And then, uh, not only that, but there's another level of check and balance at the federal level. So the US Department of Education gives the thumbs up or the thumbs down to the local accrediting agent, or the regional accrediting agencies. And as uh, many of us probably know, the federal government gives federal student loans um, only to universities and colleges that have the thumbs up from regional accrediting agencies. So if you don't have a regional accrediting agency giving your university a thumbs up, you're not going to qualify for federal student funding. And so we thought this was an interesting opportunity for the federal government to possibly hold universities more accountable since they have the power of the purse strings in giving federal student aid um, in such a large amount to universities. Um, However, at this point, there is not a lot of accountability on either the accrediting agency's side or the federal government's side for checking for racial diversity. And later on in the report, we'll talk about how different administrations have given guidelines um, to universities, but we'll talk about that later.
0: James, if I might ask, if they're not focusing on uh, racial diversity, what types of things are they focusing on for accountability purposes? I mean, what what are the accrediting agencies accrediting on then? Sure,
3: there's a lot of things. There's uh, standards of uh, procedure for um, how – they staff their university, um, how they do um they do have certain admissions criteria in terms of how they publish information. Um, so there's certain rules of having a website with publicly available information about how they actively recruit students, what their admissions criteria are for like uh, SAT and ACT scores. Um, those types of things are regulated. However, the promotion of racial diversity itself is not. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of other factors such as um, evaluation of teaching professionals, uh, the evaluation of um, like student evaluations of the university itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of other checkpoints besides um, accountability for admissions.
0: Excellent. Um, and I think that probably leads... Uh, Right into the next uh, issue that the group identified, which is political hurdles and public opinion. My guess is that these two things uh, play a role in why diversity and uh, racial diversity aren't focuses within the accrediting agencies. Just a hypothesis, but tell me a little bit about the political hurdles and public opinion that you identified.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's really, like you mentioned, a serious divide in the USA, which prevents the nation from focusing and getting on the same page in regards to these affirmative action policies, has ultimately led to the ban of affirmative action policies in eight states. California was the first to ban affirmative action policies in university admissions, followed by Washington, Florida, Michigan, Nebraska, Arizona, New Hampshire, and Oklahoma. There's really a variety of reasons for the divide in public opinion in the United States. On the one side we have people who are pro-affirmative action and they cite historical reasons as creating the need for intentional and favorable standards towards minorities in admission processes. They believe that historical racial segregation and years of oppression have led to educational inequalities like you mentioned earlier and unequal opportunities in higher education. Even more, these proponents believe that socioeconomic status also affects an an individual's access to resources, and historical oppressions have prevented minorities from being able to access or benefit from those types of resources. So they believe that in an attempt to remedy these inequalities, they argue that affirmative action is necessary to create a more level playing field. Through these policies, previously marginalized groups can have greater access to higher education. On the other hand, we have a large group that's against affirmative action, and they cite reverse discrimination as the reason for that. They suggest that admissions policies based on race contradict core tenets of the American system, such as equality and a meritocratic approach. They also suggest that these policies provide exceptions to merit standards, which leads to an overall worse educational quality for the admitted students. Additionally, they argue that affirmative action policies reverse discriminate leading to a lower chance of admittance for students with higher test scores. So in addition to the issues of reverse discrimination, opponents of affirmative action also argue and claim that the policies place unfair stigma on the admitted minority students, leading to an increased psychological pressure, which could compromise their academic performance. They also suggest that those students who are admitted based on affirmative action decisions may experience poor treatment from professors and other students who presume that they have not earned admission to the university based on merit alone. Some studies have shown that increased use of affirmative action policies and admission criteria is positively correlated with minority students experiencing lower grades, greater probability of leaving school early, and an overall decreased satisfaction with the college experience. Interestingly, the widespread use of affirmative action policies has led to a prominent theory called mismatch which suggests that students who are admitted with a lower than the university's average academic performance are not prepared for the academic rigor of the accepting university which consequently sets up those students for failure and could lead to a demoralization of the students and ultimately lower graduation rates for those students.
0: Thanks Bethany. Um, There's a lot there. Um, A lot of interesting kind of trade-offs and uh, competing values and competing empirical evidence. So the first thing I noticed when you said that that was kind of interesting to me is that the states that have banned uh, affirmative action aren't uh, of one political persuasion or another, right? You mentioned, uh, I believe, Nebraska and Oklahoma or two that I remember and California and Washington. And it's hard to find two states, I think, that are more politically different than or two sets of states in Nebraska and Oklahoma and California and Washington, um, so it's interesting that it's not just a kind of red or blue Republican Democrat issue, at least at the state level. Um, and i <clears throat> I think this uh, these questions of affirmative action and whether it's uh, useful, I think are really important when you think about these secondary and tertiary effects. and i I can say just as a as an instructor at the, at a university or a professor at a university, um, I have conversations with students from all kinds of backgrounds. And I can I mean, I can say that of the of the minority students that I've had conversations with, they also have mixed feelings about affirmative action and the pressures to your point about the mismatch, not specifically the mismatch, but the that their peers didn't uh, weren't always convinced that they should be there, right? That there was this idea that, oh, you're only here as a black woman because of affirmative action. And that was something that they very much felt as part of their academic experience. And so I think these concerns about mismatch and concerns of um, the way that peer groups and professors or teachers um, interact with students as a result of affirmative action is really something that we need to, to take into consideration while also taking into consideration the fact that Without the affirmative action policies, a lot of these same people wouldn't have access to the education at all, potentially. And so it really is a um, a pretty complex and nuanced issue uh, for what's actually best for the groups that the policies are intending to help. I and mean, this is also reminiscent of um, a variety of welfare programs that are designed to help people of a lower socioeconomic status, but there's concerns over whether, it's, whether the degree to which it actually does that versus creating stigma, versus generational poverty and the, the way that welfare might interact with that. And so it is, it, I guess just to highlight, that the complexity of making good policy to help groups of people within a society is really challenging, and it's hard to anticipate all the secondary and tertiary effects. Absolutely. Um, Okay, thank you. Another piece of this that the group uh, talked to decent about in the report was a lack of executive branch engagement. And so tell me what you mean by that.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's debatable. It's up for debate who should drive policy, whether it be Congress or the executive branch. But the reality is, is that the executive branch presidential administration drives a lot of what happens in America. They drive where policy goes and how it unfolds. So one of the things we noticed is that with affirmative action, it swings back and forth based on who's sitting in the Oval Office. Um, So going back to, like for example, going back to President Obama's term in 2011, his Department of Education initiated a policy guidance memo that was called Guidance on the Voluntary Use of Race to Achieve Diversity in Post-Secondary Education. So Obama's administration was, they were proactive in encouraging affirmative action. Since that time, um, there's obviously been changes. President Trump was elected, and his views and his administration's views on affirmative action are different. And so a result that we saw is that there was a pulling back by the executive branch of encouraging these policies, of encouraging the use of race in a holistic process, Approach to admissions. Part of that was the Trump administration doing away with the Obama era guidance. They rescinded that, they pulled out of it. So, as of right now, there's really no guidance at all um, on how universities should use race voluntarily to determine who gets into their university and who doesn't. Um, Another issue that we saw is that there's been pulling back at the Office of Civil Rights. That's a department, or I guess a little office within the Department of Education that handles discrimination, that would handle affirmative action um, type issues. And what we noticed with that little department is, first of all, is that the Trump administration went ahead and appointed somebody who is openly against affirmative action, which isn't great if that's the policy that may be helpful in increasing diversity. Uh, we also saw that they've pulled funding. So that once again, they pulled staff. Once again, all these things don't add up to helping promote a policy. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing we notice is that OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, they lack really any authority um, to do much of anything. Somebody has to first come to them, complain about an issue. Then they can go out and they can talk to a university. They can try and find out what's going on. And then even if they do find out that there's something wrong, um, that somebody's a victim or that there's some type of discrimination happening or someone's not really promoting great values, the most they can do is they can recommend to the Department of Education to limit funding or they can recommend to the DOJ to launch a civil suit. But that's it. That's where their power stops. So all these things combined kind of show an executive branch disengaged from this policy.
0: Yeah, I... um... I like how you went into some of the details of of how the executive branch functions in terms of actually implementing things, mm-hmm. and I was I was chuckling <laughs> um, when you when you mentioned that the that the person that's put in charge of this is uh, openly against affirmative action, and it made me think of other appointees within the Trump administration, of like say Scott Pruitt to the EPA, where here's someone who's ahead of the Environmental Protection Agency who doesn't seem to understand or uh, believe in protecting the environment on any real dimensions, uh, according to what we know from, you know, best science. And so it's kind of, it's interesting though, because it's not, um, it's not accidental, right? And it's not just the Trump administration that uses political appointees to, uh, to help change the mission of executive agencies even independent of what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, that's the prerogative oh, no. of the executive branch is to get to appoint people. And so it's cool. The reason I wanted to highlight this was not to kind of to, to beat up on this particular example, but to highlight something from class and for the listeners, which is that they may not know, is some of the details of actual administrative functioning really are independent of what the, what the laws are sometimes and what the precedent is because there's so much uh, authority in the in the organizations that are actually implementing these policies that if you put people at the heads of them that are uh, that are against the missions of those organizations they can't completely stop the career bureaucrats but they can play a really large role in the effectiveness of those policies and so I'm glad that you highlighted that because I'm not sure that's always clear to to everyone that follows along with politics that the nitty-gritty of the administration is really affected by who's running those organizations just like it would for private organizations. Yep. So where do we go from here, team? We You list a few different solutions. Um, I think the first one that you mentioned is uh, back to this issue of accountability um, for accrediting agencies, uh, which James, uh, I think, alluded to a little bit earlier. But how might we hold accrediting agencies more accountable?
3: Yes. Yeah, so... The US Department of Education has a great database of information for the general public. Um, they're called University Scorecards. And on the uh, Department of Education website, you can look up any university in the United States and get a breakdown of some key information about the university. Um, interestingly, they do post what their racial breakdown is for their undergraduate student body. Um, however, we proposed taking it one step further for having more public accountability and more public information in terms of whatever state that university is a part of to include a breakdown of, okay, what percentage of your student body is reflective of the state in general in which you are serving? Um, So having that breakdown of, okay, we see your racial uh, statistics here, but how about how your university breaks down in terms of your state's population in general? is it reflective of the community truly that you are trying to serve? Um, so that was one idea that we had, taking an already existing scorecard database and updating it for more general public accountability. A second idea that we had was going to the accrediting agencies themselves and empowering them to um, require universities have some type of statement that broadens their admissions Uh, criteria. So, by including a generalized statement about um, highlighting racial diversity, not just having um, a blanket statement that says whatever the school's mission is uh, for their missions criteria, but specifically highlighting that they are using um, racial criteria to promote the diversity of their state's population was another idea that we had
0: as well. Very nice. And so what else, what other strategies? I, I know another one that you mentioned is uh, nonprofit engagement and ad- advocacy, because it seems like, at least in the current uh, political atmosphere, that uh, making changes with, through the Department of Education or directly to these accrediting agencies doesn't seem like there's maybe a lot of political willpower to do that. So what, uh, what role can nonprofits play in this?
1: Exactly. Well, in, a, in order to address that, we discussed the political hurdles and the public, the divisive public opinion regarding affirmative action. We believe that efforts are required to educate the public about the proven benefits to all students in the student body of a diversity. For example, experience and experiences in diverse groups have been proven to have a positive impact on students, active thinking and intellectual engagement increasing their ability to critically analyze and ultimately better preparing them to be leaders in their careers now widespread culture does change does take time and we believe that nonprofits are uniquely able to address this issue through advocacy of the benefits of diversity it will take time but over time the advocacy work of nonprofits will begin to infiltrate all of society leading to a common understanding of the benefits of diversity and a true support for diversity, diverse cultures, and university student bodies.
0: I think that uh, seems right. That nonprofits um, can play a large role in this, and, and more so maybe even than private actors or state actors. Um, it, it'll be it would be interesting. Are there any um, nonprofits in particular that the group came across that are doing a good job at advocacy? Or is that something that y'all had the opportunity to look at?
1: It's not something I looked into heavily, but I'm sure that there are nonprofits that are focusing on, on the benefits of diversity and educating the public. And we think that continued, since there's clearly a political divide in the United States, a continued effort, really an increased effort, in convincing people that, that diversity really benefits all the students, not just those who are admitted um, based on affirmative action policies would really help to get the get the nation on the same page behind these sorts of policies and university admission processes.
0: Yeah, my understanding of the research is pretty is pretty clear as well with with, with the group's understanding that there are all kinds of benefits to a diverse learning environment. And it's something that I've uh, noticed at the Bush School as well, the way in which, particularly in this course, you get You know, you get students from not just different backgrounds within the U.S. You get students, uh, white students, black students, Hispanic students. We have a pretty, uh, you know, almost a 50-50 split among men and women. And then we also have about, I think, 20% or so of international students. And it's always been really interesting for me to watch that play out in the classroom because, as you all know, that class is very discussion-based. And... It it isn't the same in groups that are more homogenous as opposed to groups that are more diverse because people self select in different sections of the course. And so sometimes you get more diverse classrooms and sometimes you get more homogenous classrooms as an instructor. And it, I mean, just anecdotally, building on top of the empirical evidence in the literature, it's really clear to me that when you have a group of students in a discussion based class of, say, 30, and you have good representation of men and women and good representation of a variety of groups from a variety of countries, the conversations and the ability to reason through complex social problems is much higher when you have these people coming from a variety of backgrounds. So on top of the empirical evidence, I can say that just from my own firsthand experience, this is clearly something that we need more of or at a very minimum that students clearly benefit from and instructors for that matter. I mean, I I learn a lot more within the classroom from a diverse group of students than if they all look like me, for example, if they're all white men, right? And it opens my own ability, opens my own eyes to a variety of issues that maybe I wasn't aware of. So I think the benefits are hard to overstate and I completely agree that nonprofits um, seem like a good uh, player in this domain Again, particularly given the um, attitudes of the federal government towards these things right now, which is an easy transition, I think, into your, excuse me, your final solution, which you list as increased executive branch engagement and authority. And so what types of things do you think uh, or did the group come up with that would be uh, tools for the executive branch to increase their engagement and authority?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So, Just kind of disclaimer, as you've been mentioning, uh, there's not a lot of political will in the current administration. Mm -hmm. So the suggestions that we're making, it's either going to be there's going to be a change of heart in the Trump administration, and they would want to encourage the use of these tools, or it's going to be in a couple, four years, or whenever that is, um, that a new administration comes in that maybe has different views than the current one. So the things that we suggested, one of the first ones was the issuance of new policy guidance. The fact that the Obama-era guidance was rescinded has kind of left a hole, because the purpose of guidance in general is, while it's not law, it does help to provide some sort of interpretation of the law as it currently stands, um, barring some sort of Supreme Court case or um, higher court case that firmly entrenches it and overturns any type of guidance issued by an administration. So one of the things we suggested was that, the current administration or future one should issue new guidance that can reverts back to the Obama era guidance that provided ideas about how to voluntarily use race in the admissions process. And they, in the memo that they put out um, in 2011, they suggested some options. Um, some of those included things that we've already discussed, like using socioeconomic status or first generation status to help determine applicants. Another was kind of the 10% rule that Jimmy talked about, was instituting that. And others is just using race as part of the admissions process specifically, including that as a holistic approach with the intent of increasing diversity. That was our first suggestion. Um, Another suggestion that we made is that the Office of Civil Rights should have more authority to actually go out and engage universities in their admissions process. Uh, One suggestion that was made was that OCR should have almost a type of audit authority, the ability to randomly request from universities information about their admissions data and how they are admitting students. The idea behind that is kind of similar to how the IRS does random audits of companies, um, and that those random audits help to decrease corporate tax fraud and corporate tax evasion. That by having an organization that can actively go out and audit universities, that these universities might decide, well, it might be in our best interest to go ahead and self-select ourselves to voluntarily use race in our admissions approach to avoid any type of misunderstanding and to help increase diversity.
0: Yeah, I like that. And I like how it changes. Oh, sorry. I I like how that changes kind of the, you know, this uh, marginal benefit, marginal cost calculation for the universities. Um, and random audits, I think, is one uh, fairly cheap way to increase the probability that there's some mar- some real significant cost to the university, without really raising the cost to the to government uh, that uh, that much, because it changes the whole cost structure. Because random is is random, and so there's at it least does. some you take the risk. probability. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead.
5: Oh, you're good. I thought that was a great. Note to add, that's the idea behind the oddest, though, is to make universities think about, is it worth it or not? Um, And then the last one, Jimmy already touched on this a little bit in his solutions, but we also recommended targeted funding. Um, So Jimmy talked about how accrediting agencies, um, they obviously accredit a university, and if the university passes muster, then they're eligible for federal funds. Um, Part of the thing that the executive branch can do is they're usually given money by Congress, Congress controls the purse, And sometimes that's left open about how they're to spend that. And different agencies in the federal government, um, in the executive branch, including not including just the Department of Education, but also the Department of Health, Department of Agriculture, tons of departments spend on higher education and research. Um, It accounts typically, federal funding accounts for at least 16% of a university's budget. Um, So they want the money. So what we recommend is that that the executive help coordinate between all the agencies some sort of plan that helps to target funding towards universities that are willing to use and voluntarily use race as part of a holistic approach to um, increasing diversity on campus. Um, And that by doing so, that universities will say, we want the money, thus we will now act this way. We will use race as we admit people um, as part of a holistic approach.
0: Yeah, I like your uh, the focus on the power of the purse. This is something you know we talked about in class, about the influence of money and actually getting things done when it comes down to it. And you have really nice parallels in history. The one that um, is sort of popular or, or, or famous in the literature is uh, the drinking age uh, for... Uh, the legal age for drinking in the U.S. It used to be 18, right? And so the federal government doesn't have a lot of formal authority over states to change that. And so the way they did that was, um, as I recall, threatening to take away federal funds for highways. And so if you didn't change your drinking, uh, drinking age laws to 21, the federal government was going to withhold funds for interstates that come through your state. And so I really like this idea of finding, using the power of the purse complemented with uh, clear measures and clear uh, focus on some of these things to increase diversity and then say look you know on average and, and of course it varies by university but if you don't our crediting agencies are going to now focus on these things and if you don't focus on those things as well guess what you're losing federal research dollars and that seems like a real quick way to get people's attention to changing the policies here. So, I, I really like that as a suggested uh, solution. So, um, I think that nicely ties together the layout of your report. You have a, uh, you bring it all together in your conclusion. So, are there any concluding thoughts from the group members that either we haven't talked about or that you think would be useful as concluding? thoughts either you know mirroring what was in your uh, report or um, in general thoughts about this that we haven't touched on yet <laughs> not everybody at once <laughs> <laughs> well I think we have covered it quite well um, this is um, this is really well done I really appreciate your att- attention to the history of it the context and being honest about some of the trade-offs. With affirmative action, and then really giving a real politic analysis to why this is happening and getting in the little and getting in the nitty gritty detail (laughs) in the nitty gritty details of administration and the different tools available to accrediting agencies, the executive branch, universities for implementing or not implementing these, and also focusing on the power of the person, the power of resources to change the types of outcomes that we might want. Um, So very well done. Thank you for um, taking the time to chat with me today about your report. And uh, I look forward to sharing this uh, with the general public. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You Thank you.